Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. In this podcast, I talked to Andrew Davis, a guy with a fantastic bow tie. He has gone from working with the Muppets all the way to building and selling his own marketing agency, backed by the power of speaking, to becoming keynote speaker as his main job. Take a listen and learn all the secrets, including fantastic pyramid concept using speeches to sell your product. Andrew, welcome to the Fireside with Box Gig podcast. It is awesome to have you here today where it is rainy and wet in Ireland and lovely and sunny in Florida where you are sitting. Yeah, it sure That's is. That's just to make no, you no. feel bad. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, I'm really excited to be on it. It's a great show and I've, I've enjoyed listening and really happy to be a part of the show. Awesome. So you have done some really, really cool things uh, in the world of public speaking and business really great achievements. But let's start with what I would consider to be your greatest achievement, which is working for the Muppets. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, so I worked I worked for the Muppets in the late 1990s. And awesome. it was probably not their finest hour. You know, I worked on movies like Muppets from Space, which is not very good. I worked on Elmo and Grouchland, which is not very good uh, as a Sesame Street movie. Uh, but I did work on some great shows. I don't know I don't know if you guys got it in the UK and, and Ireland and Europe in general, but Bear in the Big Blue House, do you remember that show? Yeah, 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 sure. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I worked on Bear in the Big Blue House. That was actually the first show I worked on for the Jim Henson Company. Wow. And I was in charge of where they built the puppets. So like, I was basically a Muppet Wrangler and uh, in charge of the workshop where there were about 40 of the most amazing artists in the world, you know, putting together puppets every day and dressing Miss Piggy and getting... Kermit's arms to work, right? Yeah, it was fun. Wonderful, but difficult. Yeah. Oh my Lord. It was a really hard job. Uh, managing artists is, and trying to keep them on budget and on schedule is not an easy task. <laughs> you ran away to public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's right. So much easier. <laughs> my kids would love you. Wow. <laughs> it's so much fun. So you, work, you would have worked with the, the Hanson family and that type of stuff. I mean, it's kind of like touched by genius, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, look, look, Jim Henson for sure was an amazing visionary with like a real talent for uncovering and surrounding himself with the right kinds of people and really pursuing any idea he thought was a good idea and seeing it to fruition. And, uh, you know, that kind of genius, I think is hard to come by. His family was, you know, all great people. But I think we struggled in the late 1990s when I was working there, because Jim Henson had died in the early 1990s, to really find a vision that we could all pursue together. Um, 
And you know, everybody turned to the the Henson family with the hopes that that, that it was there, but wasn't really there. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a true testament to the kind of power that a simple vision and a charismatic leader can bring to an organization. You know, and and I think a lot of that has to do with the kinds of you know time and energy they put into spending time with the team and ensuring that everybody understands the kind of greater good and vision that we're pursuing is is actually going to change the world. And, and I think that was lacking when I was there. That kind of magic is, um, there's no formula for it, is there? I don't think there's no, there's no like A plus B equals C formula. But, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with lots and lots of really talented people. And I think there, you know, there's some simple similarities. Like, I think maybe the easiest one is that that they all ask these big challenging questions over and over and over again. And it's the same challenging question, you know, like the Jim Henson company, you know, Jim's question over and over again was, you know, really, how can we change uh, the world by using puppets to do things that people can't do? And that question really built a company and a vision that was unlike any other. You know, Charles Corral, who's a famous American television writer, you know, he was constantly asking people to find a story no one else could tell uh, and people had never seen before. And those kinds of questions it stick in people's mind um, and really forces them to pursue a greater kind of idea. And I think that's that for me, that's been the common theme I've seen in the kind of visionaries I've, I've been touched by, I guess. Yeah. And, and you've, you've sort of ended up doing that yourself now. So right now, these days, you are uh, much in demand keynote speaker. You get invited to speak. It was a really, really cool big conferences. You get paid for it. But uh, take us on a journey because yeah, <laughs> you went from uh, you know herding these cats, all these uh, crazy puppeteers, <laughs> <laughs> to today, right? Where you know we were just talking before you came on about you know being in snowy Nebraska and stuff like this. So how, yeah. how does that journey work? <laughs> yeah, well, the journey for me was never a conscious choice to become a speaker. To be honest, uh, I was running an agency called Tipping Point Labs that I started with a, a friend of mine who was a journalist in the early 2000s, and it was a marketing agency, it was a okay. digital marketing business, you know. And we were, you know, struggling to kind of grow the business in the early 2000s, and we're looking for the best kind of marketing ag- avenue to to get to the you know sea level executives and inspire them to to talk to us or work with us when we were competing with some of the biggest agencies in the world. And, you know, we knew it was an uphill battle and we tried all sorts of stuff, but it turns out, um, I was invited to speak at, actually, I wasn't even invited to speak. I went to attend an event in like 2007 or 2008. Uh, and I'm one of those people that's always really early, you know, uh, kind of, I don't know why, but it drives my wife nuts, but I like it. Um, and I showed up at the, you know, for the first session, which was supposed to start at like 8.30 AM, I showed up at like 7.45 and I was sitting in the, in okay. the auditorium. <laughs> that's weird. Uh, <laughs> it's really weird, right? And it's really too early. And the, the event organizer came rushing in and she was like, hi, can I help you? And I was like, oh no, you know, I'm just an attendee, but I'm really early. She's like, oh, perfect. We had somebody cancel for the 10 o'clock session, which is right after the keynote this morning. And I can't get a hold of anyone. Have you ever presented before? And I was like, well, no, not really. And she's like, great. Do you want to present at 10 a.m.? And I was like, uh, okay. So I went back to my hotel room and I put together like a presentation instead of going to the keynote. And oh, you know, I started the presentation in, in a, a room full of people who expected to hear somebody else. And at the end of the presentation, a 45-minute just breakout session, 
you know, two people came up afterwards and said, you know, is what you presented about what you do? And I was like, yeah, you know, we run an agency and they said, we want to chat. And next thing you know, we were on the phone with two level executives. And uh, one of them, I think we, we ended up doing business with even from that first event and Jim and I'm, you know, my business partner said, wait a second, maybe this is the most efficient way to build the business. So over the course of the next five years, uh, I was kind of the face of the brand and would go around the country um, speaking at events as a specifically a tool to engage C-level executives in hiring us very, very quickly. Um, so we had a much faster uh, sales cycle. You know, we were, we were designing presentations that were inspired to challenge their traditional thinking. And we never talked about the work we did. We never talked about what company we were from. And the most asked question I would get after I spoke from C-level executives was, man, that was an amazing presentation. The stories you told were so cool. And we want to hire someone that does the stuff you told in that presentation. And I would just say, um, you know, then they would say, do you know someone who does this? And we'd say, oh, well, funnily oh, enough, yeah. you know, that's exactly <laughs> what we do. And they'd say, well, here's my card, let's chat. That's like an awesome way to build a business. Uh, let's come back to that, but I'm just going to rewind. Yeah. You turn up at this conference and the organizer <laughs> goes, oh, I need, I need you to do like a 45 minute presentation. <laughs> in like two hours from now, right? And yeah. Like, oh, I just went back to my hotel room and I just, you know, did the PowerPoint and I just did the talk. I know, I made it sound so easy, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> you must have like done stuff before that, right? No, honestly, I mean, I, you know, I would say I had presented for clients before, but okay. never at an event. So even at the agency, I was definitely the person that if we needed to get up in front of a room of executives and pitch something to, you know, everybody would turn to me. Okay. <laughs> I, would do, okay. I would kind of do the job. So I was You're comfortable kind of present. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and even, you know, anytime we got a tough question in a, in a meeting full of executives, everybody would just look at me and be like, Andrew, why don't you take that one? I'm like, oh, no. So I consider myself kind of good on my feet and yeah. certainly excited about what I'm talking about. But uh, I had never presented, uh, as far as I can recall, uh, in front of a room of strangers uh, at an event in my entire Man, life. That organizer must have... They must have loved you, right? I mean, you saved their ass big time. I ended up getting very high scores and she invited me back to speak the next year, you know, (laughs) as an official speaker instead of a fill-in guest. And I met some great people at that event, by the way, um, that really did change my kind of career and perspective and... Yeah. Have you guys run your own events or did you when you had your the marketing agent? No, no, we didn't. You know, it's what, a whole different ballgame. It's right? a whole different ballgame. And what happened for us was, um, you know, uh, I think the demand grew so like relatively fast. I mean, over the course of two years, we went from, you know, having to try to find events to speak to, to having so many events reaching out for us to speak at that we had to start charging for me to speak just so that it was an easy way to say no to events we didn't think had the viable audience for us as a business. Yeah. You know, so it became kind of a revenue generator for the agency in a funny way, in addition to building the business to the point at which we had sometimes so many leads from an event that as an agency, we couldn't service them. And that actually became a point of contention for me because I felt like I was on the road a lot. I was speaking a lot and, you know, I was generating these leads that then couldn't be used. our team couldn't keep up with. And I was the face of it. So, you know, a CEO would call me three weeks later and said, you said we, you were going to reach out and we've never heard from you. And if this is how you run your business, you know, this is not... And I was like, oh man, this is embarrassing. Yeah. You know, so it's a double-edged sword. Like, I think when you do it really well, it can be unbelievably effective. And, you know, we learned <laughs> through trial and tribulation that we've got to be really clear about 
what events we're going to pursue from a lead gen standpoint and how we're then going to deal with the leads that do come in and prioritize yeah. them and make sure that they feel like they have a great experience. Let's just unpack this business strategy or this lead gen strategy uh, of speaking. Yeah. I uh, can identify with it because in my previous company, it was also an agency, a, a software agency, we used the same strategy and it was really effective in the same way. We were kind of lucky because we had a couple of different speakers. So it wasn't all of me. Yeah, example. that's great. Yeah. But it is, it is a fantastic way to grow a company and do lead gen. You kind of have to... And I think you kind of touched on one of the challenges there. You have to have a kind of a process to manage where you speak, what happens to the leads afterwards. All that stuff, you, you kind of have to think about all that stuff, don't you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean... Um... Look, in the beginning, if you're only getting one or two leads, it's oh, yeah, that's yeah, that yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I think you know the better you get and the more targeted your events become, the harder it is to deal with those inquiries in an organized way. And so, yeah, we had to kind of build a better system, everything from you know using technology to scan business cards and write notes on them so that somebody at the office could follow up with an email within 24 hours or call them within 48 hours and you know um, kind of do some research into the, the company and the brand to understand if it was a good fit for us. Uh, and then, you know, all the way down to handing, you know, one of the problems when you or problems, quote unquote, one of the challenges, I guess, when you're a speaker and you're the face for the brand is when you're not the person that that executive ends up having to deal with you, uh -huh. that transition seems really difficult. Yeah. And so it took us a while to realize that, oh, you know, what we should do is, for example, if I was speaking at a construction industry event about marketing and I got off stage and an executive from a construction company says, man, that was amazing. We would like to work with you. You know, let's have a chat. I would say, Hey, look, I would love to chat with you and I'm more than happy to, to sit down. Um, but to be totally honest, I don't know much about the construction industry, but guess what? We have a whole team led by a guy named Bradley Schwarzenbach, who is in charge of, you know, uh -huh. construction marketing uh, yeah. some brands. He's the guy that you should probably talk to. And I'm happy to make the connection and I'd love to sit in on the first call, but you know, I don't know enough about the industry. And all of a sudden, I felt like the handoff was for all the right reasons, making them positively... It was professional. Yeah, exactly. And so those kinds of things made a lot of a, a big difference in feeling like they could the, the transition could be easy and it didn't fall on my shoulders to build the relationship. So Andrew, you touched on another thing, which I think is really important, which is the content of your talks. Yeah. Right? And oh. it can't be a product pitch. It can't just be like, oh, I'm selling my company. It has to be... I would say almost from the heart, it has to be something that's actually useful for your audience first, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, we ended up building kind of a formula. <laughs> okay, wow. For making it work for us. I'm not sure how relevant it is to other people. But I mean, at the end of the day, we knew that essentially the people who hired us and hired us quickly for work were the executive level team. And if we didn't create content that worked for even just the three executives that were in the room of a 500 attendees, that this wasn't going to work. And it wouldn't, you know, because think of it this way, like when you're doing bottom up promotion, and you're trying to do a how to presentation to a bunch of people in the room to teach them to do what you do, they end up going back to their office trying to do what you taught them to do, which takes six months to realize they can't uh, do yeah. it themselves. Then they'd have to get their executives involved and say, I want you to talk to this person. You know, Nine months later, we might be pitching them, but they're not convinced. 
so that was really difficult for us. So what we had to do was design a presentation that would have how-to content in it, but be designed at a how-to-think level to challenge the assumptions of of the executives in the back of the room um, in a way that didn't alienate the rest of the audience. So we built this thing we called the Organizer's Illusion Pyramid. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> well, I mean, anyone who's ever spoken at an event knows that yeah. event organizers say we need some practical takeaways and this has to be a practical presentation. And, yeah. you know, yeah. our, our audience loves practical, get, you know, how to stuff. And so, you know, that is true to a certain extent. The problem is the people who are really going to be inspired by our presentation and actually talk about the kind of change in thinking are the people that aren't the practitioners. So like imagine a pyramid where at the top you have these C-suite executives, at the bottom you have practitioners, the people that are just going to do stuff with the information you provide. And in the middle you have managers and executives going up to the C-suite. Basically the infinite audience is the practitioners. And if you can get the how-to advice by doing a Google search, you're adding very little value to the actual live event, right? And those people want the tips and tricks and best practices. But on the managerial level, one level up, they actually want how do they do this content. So they want case studies and best practices and guidelines. They want a level up that shows them they can actually manage the how-to stuff, which is commodity content. And then one level up above the managers, these executives, not the C-suite executives, but the executives, they're looking for like, how should we kind of content? They want frameworks and best practices at a very high level. They want industry-specific case studies or examples that they can relate to and then translate for their teams below them. And at the very top, you've got the C-suite. And those people, they only resonate with presentations that have these big new innovative ideas that solve their biggest problems and it, and and they look to be challenged and engaged and they expect new thinking from a presentation. So when we were putting together a presentation designed to actually get leads out of it, we touched on all four of those pieces um, in the presentation to ensure that we got that top-down promotion. And instead yeah. of a six-month sale, we got a 45-day 45 45-day 45 sale from like speech to close of business, you know? You've written a couple of books. Is this pyramid in, in those books? Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> you this you one... need to write book number three. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be, there's a super secret book I'm working on right now with a, a super secret other speaker. And we're ready. I'll be sure to let okay. you know. But that'll have the, the organizer's illusion in it for sure. I'm just going to say, we were doing that, right? The same thing, except we were only the bottom level of the pyramid. And it took us nine months plus. Yeah. For our leads, right? And I totally recognize that now. But that was the problem, right? Well, just like you, Richard, I mean, we messed around doing the opposite because we trusted the event organizer. You know, if the event organizer says we want practical how-to tips, we were doing how-to presentations and we were seeing the same kinds of business that you were seeing. And it wasn't until we started to really challenge the market and kind of not ignore what the event organizer is saying, but deliver more than that, we started to see the business transform. And that's when we realized, you know what? We need to get strategic about this so that we know what's resonating and why these executives are saying... Because what would happen was the CEO would see the session and it wasn't like the CEO would call and say, let's do this. The CEO would say, I want a card. Our head of marketing is not here and I wish they had seen this presentation. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to have our, you know, our CMO uh, reach out to you. Her name's Becky and, and you guys have to chat. And with that kind of endorsement, the calls came fast and furious. And we never had any objections when the CMO decided to work with us. You know, it just worked. 
Yeah, they they were just getting their tasks done. Oh wow, you know the CEO would do it. Yeah, exactly. The agency that, that uh, you guys did was really successful, and and I think you sold it. Yeah, that's right. Congrats for a start. Not an easy thing to get to that one. Thanks. <laughs> and then um, you moved to a different phase where you became a professional keynote speaker. Yeah. <laughs> Again, congratulations, because that's kind of you know <laughs> a lot of our listeners want to do that. So how did that work? How did you go? Like, how long did it take? Uh, well, so I started, I started speaking basically full time in 2013. And that meant essentially just taking any gig that would pay even a modest amount, meaning $500 (laughs) or $200 to come and speak. Was that important that they were going to pay you? Well, for me, it was important, even if I ended up waiving the fee, it was important for them to know that I value, I had a value I was attaching to my speaking. So, you know, if they said, Hey, we'd love to have you come speak, um, you know, we don't pay speakers, I would say, Oh, well, unfortunately, you know, my speaker fee is $250. And sometimes they would say, Well, okay, well, we'll, we're happy to pay that. Or they'd say, Well, again, we don't pay speakers. And I'd say, Well, in this case, you know, I'd love to do a breakout session and I'm happy to waive the fee. And I'd even, by the way, send an invoice that said, you know, keynote speak or breakout session speaker, Andrew Davis, fee $250, discount $250. (laughs) Um, This is a guy, okay. So just, just for everybody else out there, this is a guy who ran an agency. (laughs) This is exactly the hardcore (laughs) stuff you learn running an agency, right? So you don't get screwed. That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, because I think that helps set an expectation that I believe there was value to what I was providing. And, and, you know, to be honest, if I got a referral from the event and the, they called the event organizer, they would say, Oh, he was $250, but he gave us a discount. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. So that kind of stuff helped. But I, I learned very quickly within the few, first few uh, events, maybe two months that, you know, you don't get keynotes, you, you earn keynotes and you have to actually, uh, you, you know, kind of think of yourself as a stand-up comedian where you're just going to take as many gigs as you can to kind of hone a speech to the point at which it turns into what I call a referable speech. And a referable speech for me is a speech that generates three stage side leads within 72 hours of every speaking gig. Wow, so okay. there's some exceptions to that, but a stage side lead is basically someone who either calls you or, or emails yeah. you or talks to you right next to right after you're done and says, I want you to come speak at our event. Measure your talks. Yeah. Cool. I just measure it in referability, yeah. you know, and I know a speech isn't ready if I'm not getting any referrals for that speech. I think this touches on another aspect. Our, our previous guest called Alan Kelly, he, um, when I was speaking to him, he was talking about the fact that he felt guilty doing the same talk again at different conferences. Oh, right. But eventually realized that, no, that's, you totally got to do that because that's the way you refine a talk so that it's excellent. Yeah. You know what? More importantly, Alan's totally right, by the way. But more importantly, uh, I spent some time interviewing event organizers with a little team of people I have, I didn't do the interview, a lot of the interviews, because I was scared they would, you know, get, like, uh, kind of skew their answers so that I would feel better. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but when we asked people, essentially, one of the keys for an event organizer to feel comfortable hiring a, a speaker, or inviting a speaker to come and speak is reliable delivery. And so when you're changing your speech every single time in service of the audience, you're actually doing yourself and the next audience a disservice because the event organizer wants to have this belief that you're going to deliver the same caliber speech with the same kind of messaging to the same audience or, you know, same or similar audience at a different event. 
And as soon as I started to realize that a high degree of referability relies on reliable delivery, I could see the change in my business alone where people are like, wow, that was good. It doesn't feel like it's kind of a scripted presentation, but it's so reliably delivered that I can see this is the same kind of thing you deliver every single time when you do the loyalty loop speech or the curiosity factor speech. It's so well executed that I can, with a high degree of confidence, invite you to my event and get that same kind of experience. In the world of organizing events, reducing every little piece of risk. Exactly. Why would anybody run an event? It's crazy. Exactly. I love this idea of, of thinking of, of your, thinking of it like being a comedian. I mean, it's not necessarily that your, your talks have to be full of jokes, but... No, no, no. Yeah. There's all these little pubs down back alleys in London where all the British comedians practice their next, next season. Of course. Yep. Shows. And um, you can go and see them for free. Right. All you have to buy, all you have to do is a, buy a pint of, of Guinness. Buy a drink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the problem is, right? It's actually not a good deal because the jokes are going to be really bad. <laughs> exactly. Your free beer gets you some free jokes. That's about exactly. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the material is it takes months to refine. Oh yeah. You, you know where I I actually learned this by um, I used to do open mic night comedy stuff just for fun really? as a hobby. Like, yeah, when I lived in Boston, wow. I was like, oh, tough audience. You know what? I think open mic nights every everywhere are tough, but yeah. yeah, sure. Boston is not, yeah, it's not any easier. And, um, you know, for anyone that's ever been to one or, or has, you know, has seen one or, or even done one, there, there's usually an open mic night host. And so I was going to the same bar every week, uh, for, you know, I don't know, maybe a year and a half. And it was hosted by this one guy. And it, when you're the host, you get to go up every, you know, every five minutes after every comedian and introduce the next comedian. Well, the, the host of our open mic night was leaving. And this guy who I'd become friends with was this guy named Josh Gondelman. Uh-huh. And Josh, raised his hand and said, I'll be the host of open mic night. And I was like, Josh, are you crazy? Like you have to stay here all night, deal with these idiots. And he was like, no, you know what? Here's what I see. I get to go up every five minutes and try out the same joke all night until it works. And today, Josh Gondelman is like, is a writer for some of the biggest comedy shows in, in America. He's a great stand-up comedian. He was one of the finalists in uh, Last Comic Standing, which is an American show that, uh, you know, like elimination show. Like, it's America's Got Talent. Britain's Got Talent for comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he honed that because he just th- thought like a comedian. And I think as speakers, we can do the same thing. He has to be willing to go up there and die on stage repeatedly, right? All the time. Mm-hmm. When he was introducing the next comedian or whatever, and the jokes, Pat. Yeah, out, right? it's harder to do that as a speaker, um, you know, because there is no open mic night. But here's here's the way I thought of it. When I started speaking professionally and I was just doing breakout sessions, my thought was, hey, look, I've got to earn the keynote stage. So I'm going to deliver a breakout session full of content that I know and I'm confident in. Um, but what I'm going to do at this particular event, the one that's happening tomorrow, is try five new minutes within this context of 45 minutes speech of new material that I think is keynote caliber. And I videotape every one of my speeches. Since 2013, I videotaped every one of my speeches. I started shooting on my iPhone and then now I have a camera that I shoot on. Yeah. Uh, now I have two cameras and I watch it the next day and I say, did that five minutes work? Okay. Well, maybe the whole five minutes didn't work, but these three and a half minutes are really good. Let me refine that and try it again the, with the next speech on Thursday. And so I'm constantly just taking 
five minutes at a time and trying to build into a 45 minute keynote caliber speech. And the goal is that from a breakout session, the comments come back and I, you know, I've watched it happen. When I do a breakout session, my goal is that the comments from the, the feedback from the audience is this should have been the keynote. Like, why isn't this a keynote? He should have been on the keynote stage. Uh, and when you start thinking like that, all of, yeah, yeah, all of a sudden you're like, you're, okay. you're, you're invited to be on the keynote stage. Andrew, you've given you've given us a pathway from <laughs> from doing uh, <laughs> tiny little meetups to meetup talks to ten people all the way up to uh, I don't know the keynote at Web Summit or something like that. There we go. Let's do it. Absolutely. We'll finish though with a little bit of practical reality. <laughs> Travel a hell of a lot, right? Yeah. And uh, that's the downside to this gig. And I, I remember when I was doing it when I was working in the agency. Uh, it was kind of my primary role was getting out there. Yeah. It kind of it's 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 hard going. It's grueling. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound like a downer. You know, there are lots of great things about what I do. I love meeting people. I, I certainly love speaking. I love the events I get to attend. I even love most of the cities I get to go to. Uh, but the truth is when you're on the road 200 days a year and you're speaking 55 or 65 times a year, they end up being sandwiched into a total of about six or eight months out of the year, which means it's it's like a grueling pace of airports and hotels and takeout food and room which service. Which is where you are right and, now, right? Um, this is conference season. Right? Yeah, yeah, this is it. This, this is, is uh, late November. Of, if you're listening to yeah, this, is late November, and um, you know, by late November, I cannot wait to be home. Just sitting in front of a, a big vat of ice cream, talking to no one and staring out the window um, <laughs> because it's, it is excruciatingly grueling by that point. And, you know, I actually tell people all the time that I don't get paid to speak. I get paid to travel. Like I would speak for free if everybody just showed up at my house every week. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the, the fee is really to deal with all that kind of uh, extra effort it takes to get to and from events. And to be honest, the stress, you know, when you're doing three events in, in four days uh, in three different cities, uh, oh, it's it gets right. stressful when the the flights delayed and it's the last flight out and you're not sure if it's going to take off and you're you start mapping how long is the drive from Washington D.C. to Nebraska and oh, could wow. I make it if I left now and should I just get an Uber and we'll drive through the night like that kind of stuff really takes its toll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is the sucky end of things. Yeah, but I love it and I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> One final question, right? So yeah. Was one of my favorite questions as well. Think back to one of your best talks. One time when it just it everything just worked and it was perfect. Why? Why did it work? Well, first tell us when it happened and why was it so perfect? Man, this is a really hard question. Because all your talks are good. <laughs> no, because the opposite. I don't think I've. I think I've yet to deliver the speech that I would consider a perfect speech. I think. Okay. I mean, I can tell you times when I think it's gone really well. Okay. Well, let's let's pick one of those, right? Yeah. Uh, let's see. In 2018, I spoke at Content Marketing World, um, and I was really happy with the way it turned out. You know, that's an event with about 4,000 attendees. And for me, it was a pretty big deal. It's the second time I was invited to be the keynote there over the course of 10 okay. years. And so I really wanted to deliver something that kind of challenged the audience and made them think differently. And the reason I think it went so well is I spent a lot of time um, kind of crafting a presentation that on multiple levels worked for the audience, but was entertaining, you know, had a kind of a performance aspect that I had never tried before, like 
uh, I bring a mystery box out on stage that I order from Amazon and we unbox it together, um, you know, to kind of prove a point. And it was really, really fun. And so for me, I think it worked really well because I'd spent a huge amount of time and energy rehearsing the presentation uh, leading up to it, basically about a year crafting that one presentation. And to the point at which it didn't feel rehearsed because I kind of broken through that point where it's like I've rehearsed it so much that it really felt like I was just delivering the best version of it. And so I was really proud of that. Awesome. And is that, that must be online, right? That must be on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, it's online for sure. Yeah. And I mean, that speech, the curiosity factor, next year will be the most booked speech for the year. So like every year, I actually try to debut a new speech. And sometimes it turns out to be a total failure. <laughs> and sometimes it's a, you know, it's a hit. And the curiosity factor is a, certainly a hit. So I'm excited about that one. We're going to watch out for that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go check that out. Yeah, take a look. It's really fun. Andrew, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Oh, man, thank you. I love the pyramid. The pyramid is cool. Oh, <laughs> I wish I'd known about good. it I'll send like you 15 a... years ago, but... I know, right? Me too. It would have saved us some time, let me tell you. Well, I'll take a screenshot of it and I'll send it to you and you can share yes, it with please. everybody yeah. listening. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care. Hey, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com slash speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.